This is your host, Michelle, and welcome to today's episode of the Happy Pelvis Podcast, a podcast all about bridging the gaps in pelvic health care and bringing awareness to the hurdles individuals face as a result of living with persistent pelvic pain. To keep up to date with what's coming up, be sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Happy Pelvis. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get right into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I'm excited to have with us today Kate Wall, who is a UBC graduate researcher whose focus is on advancing sexual and reproductive health and has also co-led a study on menstrual health and endometriosis education uh, within schools. So in this episode, we, I hope that we can dive into what can be done to help bridge the gaps in the diagnosis and the treatment of endometriosis, um, despite the fact of its debilitating and really substantial prevalence um, of this condition within our population. So um, without further ado, thank you for joining me today, Kate. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey into research and advocacy within Canada. Thanks, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here. Um, Oh, my journey into research and advocacy. Well, I think I guess the place to start would be research because that is how I learned about endo. I went back to school in 2017 to get my master's after having done cancer research for a few years. And um, I knew that I wanted to shift my focus away from cancer to uh, women's health. And so I literally Googled like understudied women, women's health conditions and endometriosis came up. And that's the first time I had ever or I remember ever hearing about it. Um, so I was, you know surprised that I had never heard about it. And so I did some more Googling and found the endometriosis and pelvic pain um, laboratory at UBC. And I thought, this is where I'm going to go do my master's. So I went and did that under the supervision of Paul Young. Um, and I learned so much about endo in, in that two-year period. So for example, learned that it isn't a condition that only affects women. Um, I also got the opportunity to work with a lot of folks who who live with endo and have living experience. I got to know the body of research. And one of the things that made me angry um, is that we do know how much of an impact it has on people, you know, themselves physically, their quality of life, their relationships, their ability to work, like everything. Um, And it's so clear and so little is being done about it. And I just found that to be really frustrating to be honest. Um, And I like policy and politics just like recreationally. So I always kind of thought it would be really neat um, to bridge these two things. And um, then an opportunity sort of presented itself to work with the Endometriosis Network Canada and the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Gynecologic Excellence. They were looking to partner on sort of government focused initiatives. And I got looped into that. And that was the start of my advocacy journey so yeah I'm really grateful I guess that I googled that um in 2017 and grateful to the people who've taught me so much about endo since then um you know how I was 27 and I'd never heard of it and I think that's such a signal that there's a big problem and a signal that we need endometriosis advocacy 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I myself have received an endometriosis diagnosis and it wasn't until probably about 15 years after my symptoms started, after the many, many trips to the ER, to the, my family doctor complaining about the pain, to my gynecologist, and I had no answers for so many years. Um, so it's very much needed. So thank you for all that you're doing right now. I love how you so uh, looking at your education, um, you started at the University of Toronto, worked your way to UBC, and it's interesting that that program for pelvic pain and endometriosis was at that university. So it's like the stars aligned, you, you figure like it was that Google search that uh, sort of launched you in that direction. Um, so thank you for that. Um, also, before we get deep, uh, dive a little bit deeper, for our listeners who may not know, could you define or explain um, what endometriosis is exactly? Yeah, so there's kind of three things that I always try to highlight when I talk to someone who hasn't heard of endometriosis before. You know, the first thing is usually like endo, endo what, endo what, endo what? So we spend some time like on the actual word. Um, and then, so the first thing I like to highlight is that it's a chronic inflammatory disease that incurs when endometrial-like tissue implant outside of the uterus to form lesions, cysts, and deep nodules. And I try to emphasize to people that like one of the things is that endometrial-like phrase. So it's not the same as the tissue that lines your uterus, but it is similar. Uh, the second thing I try to make sure people take away is that although Historically, we thought of endometriosis as a gynecologic condition. Those lesions, cysts, and deep nodules are found both on gynecologic structures and non-gynecologic structures. So every system of the body, the bowel, the bladder, the diaphragm, the lungs, it really is a systematic um, disease. And that's something I think it's important for people to understand. Um, and the last thing I try to sort of have as a take-home message is that although historically again we've talked about endometriosis as a disease that affects white women it in fact affects women transgender gender diverse and two-spirit people from all races so it's those three things the endometrial-like tissue the whole body disease and the like diversity of people that the disease affects yeah i for so long i thought i was alone um and uh like the only one struggling with it because many people in my in, like immediate uh family and friends circle did not struggle with the pelvic pain that I struggled with and because of it being so common statistics show one in ten or new new statistics I'm seeing popping up recently are suggesting even one in nine individuals assigned female at birth or gender diverse individuals and overall it's like 190 million worldwide who might be affected by endometriosis which is mind-blowing so endo endometriosis research deserves that funding and that attention that really suits the disease that has this huge prevalence um, and also economic burden and costs that aren't really spoken about as well. Um, so because it's such a common 
um, condition or we're, we're noticing more and more, it's becoming more, I like to say common is not normal. So <laughs> that's another thing. I use the word common um, and people say, oh, that's common. And a lot of doctors like to use the word common. Um, but common does not equal normal. I just want to point that out. But um, anyways, going back to um, the funding and the attention that endo needs, I want to, because you have a, like a public health background as well, like I, I was curious to know your take on what does the phrase endometriosis is a public health issue? Um, what does that mean to you exactly? Yeah, I first just like want to say I really love that common not normal. They mean entirely different things. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to highlight and to think about too when we're doing that like advocacy work and talking to other people about the disease to clarify that we mean that a lot of people are affected, not that their experience is something that they should be going through or is normal. Um, so for me, a public health issue is a problem that affects a significant proportion of the population at like a really high level. That's what it means to me. So you've outlined already how common endometriosis is. We know, you know, that's one to two million Canadians living with this disease. And we know it has that huge impact on individuals, their families and, and society. You make this really great point. You know, I think a study from 2009 showed that endometriosis cost 1.8 billion dollars annually and if you adjust that for today's dollars it's something like 2.4 or something so it's a huge huge cost to society um let alone the folks living with the disease so it's definitely a public health issues if you issue if you look at the numbers and what's interesting is that we haven't seen like a traditional public health response right so let's think about other chronic conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease um, similarly, you know, they're lifelong conditions, they have this chronic effect, there's some parallels that you can definitely draw. And what we can see is that governments do invest in things like surveillance. So how many people actually are being diagnosed with this condition, research, what causes it, how can we treat it, and education, how can we raise, you know, awareness about this disease, broadly speaking, those are sort of key public health functions. And we don't see that at all for endometriosis. So it's not only a public health issue. I think it's a neglected public health issue. How would you, why would you say um, it hasn't been looked at um, in comparison to illnesses like diabetes, um, HIV, mental health? Um, what do you think those barriers are? Yeah, I think sexism is a huge contributing factor. You know, we talk about intersectionality and how that affects individuals with the disease that's also true I think for public health policy so first you have you know it's a condition that affects women we know from the literature overall that women's health is not prioritized and you know the health of gender diverse and trans folks is prioritized even less there's some research showing that um, compared to men who present to the ER in pain women who present in pain are much more likely to be given a psychologic or psychiatric diagnosis than a diagnosis relating to like the pain in their bodies itself, like a heart attack or whatever. So that's a that's a huge dimension of it. And I think it just, um, it starts to pile on a little bit from there. So we know that, you know, folks who, black 
Black women, for example, also have increased experience, difficulty accessing care, harder for folks who are living with disability to access care. And those things kind of just compound and make it super difficult to, to access care individually. But I think also explain some of why this disease has been neglected for so, so long. And another contributing factor, I think, in that sort of sexism realm is we as a society don't feel comfortable talking about many of the symptoms of endometriosis. We don't want to talk about periods. We don't want to talk about painful sex. We don't want to talk about bowel issues. You know, fatigue is difficult to explain. And what I think the result of that can be is it just sometimes boils down to either this, that's normal, the part of, you know, being a woman, that sort of discourse, um, or like we we just aren't going to talk about it and yeah, it's a huge taboo, issue I think that it, taboo level yeah, of the taboo. conversation that you don't want to talk you don't want to touch that conversation right yeah exactly and we don't you know learn about it in schools I think it's it's a broader issue and it doesn't just affect people with endo think about you know fibroids um adenomyosis PCOS there's so many conditions where where we're so behind because of these intersecting factors that make us as a society sort of unwilling to invest in the advancement of knowledge and care. We discussed earlier your involvement um, within endometriosis advocacy through the Canadian organization um, EndoAct. Could you, could you describe to the listeners what EndoAct is exactly? Um, within the community, we hear of a Canadian national action plan um, but many people don't exactly know what that is or how they can help um, sort of move this forward in any way. So could you explain um, a little bit uh, deeper as to what the EndoAct organization is and what they do uh, for endometriosis um, patients or uh, policy across Canada? Yeah, so um, EndoAct is an unincorporated nonprofit and our goal is to advance government action on endometriosis that's grounded first and foremost in the needs of the Canadian endometriosis community, and second, on the best available evidence. Um, I think I said before it was co-founded by the Endometriosis Network Canada and the Canadian Society for the Advancement of Gynecologic Excellence. Um, and the logic for that, I think, was really just to bring together people with all types of expertise. So people with lived experience who know what it's like to try and get a diagnosis, to try and get access to care, how they're being treated by the health system, along with researchers who study everything from what is the cause to what is the best model of care that we can deliver here, as well as you know those surgeons and other healthcare providers who are, who are trying to provide care for people with this disease on a day-to-day -day basis. So our volunteers do include folks with lived experience, but also you know, researchers like me and uh, healthcare providers. So that's EndoAct. In terms of a national action plan, that at a very high level is just a policy that's developed in Canada, like in our case, by the federal government that defines how that government is going to deal with an issue. So a national action plan on endo would describe how the federal government's going to make positive change on this disease. Um, so in the end, Endoact's vision of a Canadian plan, that plan would be developed by the government um, in consultation with the community so they can understand what the priorities are and what the best way to address those priorities is. So we do see 
you know, Australia has an action plan, France has one, there's kind of popping up in different places in the world. They have, they have similar themes, usually, improving access to care, education, schools and research, I think I've seen that in every single policy so far. But I think it's really important that, you know, if we're successful in getting a plan in Canada, that it's really based on the Canadian context and what people in Canada need. So for example, compared to France, which is a really densely populated country, in Canada, we need a solution for folks living in rural, remote, and northern communities. We need solutions for folks living in the maritime provinces and other places where there's not, there's even worse access to care, you know? So yeah, so I think it's a good question to ask what, what would the plan look like? And the answer for us is it really should depend on the community. And the first step is just getting the federal government to commit to doing the plan in the first place and then holding them accountable. I think if you look at examples internationally, you know, countries will launch a plan and then the accountability kind of wobbles a little bit after that. So I think phase one is let's get a plan. Step two, let's make sure that plan reflects what the community actually needs. And step three, let's keep holding the government accountable for what they said they would do. You know, the government deals with thousands of issues and it's a little bit just about like maintaining that pressure over time. And you can see again from, from other places in the world that, you know, once you have the plan, those other steps continue to be really important. Um, I think that answers your question. I guess one other thing I would say about a national action plan is, you know, sometimes we get the question, well, why a national action plan? And that's also a really great question because in Canada, healthcare is funded by the federal government, but it's actually delivered by our 13 provincial and territorial governments. Um, so the reason Act chose to focus on a national action plan or the federal government was that if we're successful, the benefits of that plan would be felt across the country and not by folks living in any one province or territory. That being said, like I just said, the federal government doesn't deliver health care, so there's also a limit to what a national action plan can actually achieve. And that's why we're really happy to support. There's so many amazing provincial advocates out there leading work, um, and we're really happy to work with them, too. I think, you know, there's so much advocacy work to do, and one of the things that really gives me hope in this work is just how many people are out there making a positive change whether it's locally in their community in their province it's just it's a real privilege to work um, in the Canadian setting when you there's a lot of talk within your your discussion there about patient perspective um, I know now patient perspective is recognized as a, like a key component in guideline research any development um, within any condition process um, so my question to you is what can we as patients because we if we want to give our perspective we want to have input but a lot of us are bed bound uh, chronically ill and are disabled so how can we have an impact um, and make this action plan happen to receive better support um, and awareness for endometriosis, um, especially here in Canada? Yeah, that's such an amazing question. And I think also such a 
flag, right? I think to ask a community to do more advocacy that's already managing so much on a day-to-day -day basis, you have to think really carefully about how can we do that in a good and safe way where we're not adding additional burden for like no reason. Um, so in terms of advocacy, just looking at the federal level, I think we've had a lot of really good momentum. We did a letter writing campaign where um, almost 300 people sent more than 500 emails to every single member of parliament. There's 338 of them. And that led to, I think, 25 meetings with different elected folks, which is huge. We went from a parliament of people where probably a handful knew what endometriosis was to a parliament of people where every single person or someone on their staff, if we're being a little bit skeptical, um, knows what endometriosis is. And really the upshot of that work, um, in addition to that sort of global awareness, was that MP Don Davies put forward a motion for a national action plan for endometriosis. So that motion will come up for a vote at some point, um, and that would be another sort of step along the path to making this happen. Um, in terms of what folks can do now, I think if you haven't written to your MP yet, it's never too late. Um, EndoAct has an advocacy toolkit that includes a totally customizable letter or email. You can just copy, paste it, and change it however you want and send it off to your MP. Um, something else you can do if you've already done that um, and you haven't had success connecting with your MP is just keep trying. So for me, my MP is Christia Freeland. She's our deputy prime minister. And I don't know how many times I've reached out, but it's been quite a few times <laughs> and so far no success. But the new thing I think I'm going to try and do is collect signatures from people who work in this riding and see if enough of us from this one riding are like, hey, this is an issue and we want to have a meeting. Maybe we can get her or someone from her team sort of at the table, which would also be huge, right? She's the second most powerful politician in Canada. So that's this something I'm thinking about. So thinking a little bit creatively about how to keep that conversation happening is really good. I think um, another thing like we talked about is that federal provincial split. So um, that toolkit that I mentioned also has a letter for provincial officials, making them aware of endometriosis and pointing out things that the provinces can do. So decreasing surgical wait times is a really good example of something that the provinces are responsible for that would make a huge difference. Like people should not be waiting one, two, three years for surgery, that's wild. Um, and that's something that reaching out to your provincial member of parliament, you know, that's something that we can ask for. So yeah, I think that's the other call is just to start thinking too about that other level or lever of action at the provincial level. And just to say, we do know this works. So no, in the most recent budget in Nova Scotia, um, they had a specific dollar value assigned to reducing surgical wait times and endo was specifically mentioned. And that's happening because of that provincial advocacy, which is super cool. It's that phrase, and <laughs> please uh, jump in because my mind uh, is not too great today. But uh, if like you start locally, act what globally, yeah. Okay, yes. So that's how I see a lot of it. A lot of us want to make change everywhere. We want we want um, to educate everyone at every walks walk of life, but it's just not feasible. 
So starting locally at your home base and not giving up, just like you said, is I also did not hear from my MP. So on my list of things that I want to get done within the next month or two is really pushing those conversations. And I really like your creative way of getting around to Christian Freeland. That's very creative. And that would be incredible to see get pushed through and have her talk about endometriosis. That would be incredible. Um, and as you say, the federal and the provincial split uh, could be a little bit tricky uh, to get all the provinces all aligned. Um, and currently, um, we are located in Ontario. Um, and if there are any listeners in Ontario who are listening, I wanted to ask you um, at a provincial level, like what can an, any of the listeners here do right now um, to help make changes um, locally and other ways? Um, what do you think about that? What do you, where do you, where does your mind go? Oh, yeah. Um, there's so much good stuff happening in Ontario. We talked about the letter the Endo Act has, but one thing I think that's front of mind for me is the team at Endometriosis Events is getting signatures on a petition for the Ontario legislature. So that petition basically calls on the government um, to deliver better education in schools. So that menstrual health and endometriosis education um, to provide more training for healthcare providers so that they have the knowledge and the skills that they need to provide adequate care um, for more research funding and for other initiatives to improve access to care. So that sort of global perspective on the things that that government can do to really move the needle for Ontarians. Um, so if you live in Ontario, you can help collect signatures for that petition and what happens with those petitions is they're read on the floor of the legislature and the government has to issue a formal response. So again, a really good way to start holding feet to the fire and demanding change for folks living in Ontario. Um, so I think that for me is like number one thing that folks can do in Ontario. If you live in Christia Freeland's writing, send me a DM and we can all do our letter together, but that's more specific. I love that. <laughs> Um, that's so great. Uh, endometriosis events is doing incredible work right now locally within their communities. Um, also, it, it probably is close to your heart because you are focused um, on studies of menstrual health and endometriosis education in schools. So this is probably like Christmas seeing like <laughs> things, um, movement happening within the community and um, things are being spoken about now and change is happening. So you must be uh, incredibly excited uh, to- Yeah, I was, oh, sorry. Go ahead, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I was so excited to see the approach that endometriosis events took because I do think that that education early on in schools for, for students of all genders is really important for addressing those taboos that we talk about um, and making sure that people feel sort of comfortable talking about their their health in a in a public setting. But what I also really like about the the petition is that it addresses the flip side of the coin, right? Because what we don't want is to educate all these young people about you know the signs and symptoms of endometriosis, just to have them go to their family physician or who, their primary care provider say, "I'm worried I have endometriosis," and have that provider say this is completely normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Go away. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's 
it's so key to pair that education for youth with initiatives to make sure that when they you know work up the courage to go talk to their their healthcare provider that their experience is validated that they're believed and that they're put on the path to getting the care that they need yeah it's those tools and resources that we're able to provide them that is tra- changing their trajectory of their health care for their future. We might not be able to change everybody's right now, but if we can start educating at that foundational level, um, a lot can be done in the future. So um, that's really exciting to hear and to talk about, right? We are just about to run out of time. So uh, I'd like to ask you uh, maybe one more question. And this question I started, like I've wanted to start asking my guests because this is a thought that comes to my head a lot um, as I drive down the gardener through Billboard Alley. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, so it doesn't have to be Billboard Alley in Toronto, um, what would it say and why? Uh, it could be a few words or a sentence. Um... Yeah, yeah. And this is intimidating because of your marketing background. Um, so <laughs> I think too, I think if it was location specific, I would put one on Parliament Hill that says solve the endometriosis crisis. But setting aside that fantasy, I guess, because there are no billboards on Parliament Hill. That's a great um, idea, though. Speak... <laughs> yeah. That's true. We could, I mean, there are people protesting there all the time. Maybe what we actually need is an endometriosis rally at Parliament Hill. There you go. You and I just came up with the next thing, maybe. With one Um, of those really big signs. A huge one. Yeah. Just stay there forever um, until they do something. Oh, I love that idea, actually. I'm going to take that back to our advocacy team and say, how about an endo rally on on Parliament Hill? That would be incredible. Um, That would be so great. But if I had to sort of pick, I guess, like my mantra for endometriosis advocacy, maybe, I think it would be stronger together. Um, I feel really lucky to to work with people who live with endo, with researchers investigating different parts of the disease and with, you know, the surgeons who treat it. I think every single one of those groups has expertise on a different aspect of the disease. And for me, when we bring that aspect, those types of expertise together to demand, you know, more operating time for endo, more funding for integrative care, more education or more money to understand what actually causes this disease and how we can cure it. That's how we make change happen. I learned so much um, from other researchers, from people who live with endo and, and from healthcare providers that I wouldn't learn if I stayed in my really narrow lane as a researcher. Um and it's a huge privilege to be able to do that learning. And I think that's also how we can get shit done. I don't know if we're allowed to swear. Get stuff done in case you need to edit it out. No, we can <laughs> totally swear. <laughs> Unscripted. Oh, man. No, that's that's really that's a really good idea. And now that you said rally, I have like all these visions in my head of what that could look like. Parliament Hill um oh you could do the signage it would be beautiful (laughs) big huge font that everybody can read and everybody understands what's going on yeah thank you for sharing I I appreciate you um 
even though you were a little bit <laughs> intimidated by my background. Um, I'm not a copywriter. I'm a designer. So no intimidation there. Um, <laughs> I got um, it and fall on my face. <laughs> on that note, we are running out of time. But if I'd just like to, to ask you your one final thought um, that you want to leave the listeners with in regards to advocacy reform um your research uh where you see the future um of endometriosis in Canada anything um what would your final thoughts be um and where can the listeners find uh you online if that is interests you for people following you on social media or how can people get in contact with you in regards to um, information about your work? Yeah, thanks. Um, oof, final thoughts. I mean, final, my mind's always racing, but my final thoughts for right, right here and right now, I think is just, you know, I, my colleague from Endoact, Emily Rowan, always says that advocacy can take many forms. And I think about that a lot. Um, because it is so true. It can really look like advocating for yourself or a loved one at a medical appointment. It can look like sharing good information online. It can look like being part of a support group or participating in research or doing research. Um, and it can be focused on government action. It's a really deeply personal activity. And like we've talked about, it does take time and energy on top of everything that people are already doing and living with. So I guess my final thought is more of just a, a thank you to folks who are doing that work. Um, it It's hard. And I think sometimes it goes, you know, not seen, especially at the personal level, but that is advocacy. And I think those are the things that, that ultimately like strengthen us as advocates and bring us together. That's so beautifully put. And I, I could not, could not agree more. Each of us have our own abilities. Each of us have our own limitations. And every little bit that each of us do is, is a piece of the puzzle. Um, and the more, uh, e even if it's small, so, so even though you, you don't think it's going to make um, a ripple, it, or, yeah, it's going to make a ripple. And that ripple, like I like using this, I've used this in the past, but that ripple can make a wave and make a tsunami so um it, it doesn't matter how little you think you're inputting into the cause every little bit helps and our advocacy community is just so grateful for each and every one of you so for all the listeners who are advocating in their own way thank you thank you thank you for for doing that for yourself for your family and for for the community okay where can the listeners find you or contact you um, if they would like to get any more information on um, some of your initiatives? Yeah, um, you can find me personally at Kate J. Wall on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find Endoact at Endoact Canada on Twitter and Instagram too. Yeah, those are the two main places. Always happy to chat all things advocacy and research. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode with graduate researcher Kate Wall. 
Thanks so much for listening. And thank you, Kate, for joining me today. Uh, make sure you uh, check thanks out for having me. Make sure you check out the episode description for notes and the links that Kate uh, or I discussed within this episode. Take care, everybody. Bye. If you'd like to stay in touch, please make sure you subscribe to the Happy Pelvis newsletter, which I send directly to your inbox every month and download a free pelvic pain resource guide. You can find both of those links directly in the description. Well, that's it for today. I hope you all have a low pain rest of your day and I will talk to you on the next episode. Bye.